Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Well, magnesium, the body's master mineral, of course. Even digestion is influenced. Big problems, though. Magnesium has been largely missing from the U.S. soil since the 1950s, which explains why up to 80% of people may be deficient. And most supplements contain only one to two forms of magnesium, when in reality, there are at least seven your body needs and benefits from. So I'm excited, as always, to tell you about the new magnesium product I've been talking about for some time, Magnesium Breakthrough. It is the ultimate magnesium supplement out there. I'm even more excited because it's finally back in stock. Magnesium Breakthrough has been selling faster than the company makes it by Optimizers has been able to keep up with. It's already sold out a few times due to supply shortages with everything going on in the world. It could very well be sold out again shortly. The Dr. Drew team was able to arrange for some stock to set aside just for our audience. I guarantee it's the best available on this product anywhere. Seriously, with volume discounts combined with our custom 10% code, Dr. Drew 10, you can save up to 40% off selected packages of Magnesium Breakthrough. It's an amazing value. And I promise this deal is only available on this specific website, magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. You will not find the deal at Amazon or even the company's own website. The deal is exclusively for podcast listeners, and it is for a limited time while supplies last. They've also completely revamped their checkout process, so it's much easier and friendlier. Magnesium Breakthrough is the most effective magnesium supplement I've ever tried. To say goodbye to having to buy seven different bottles of magnesium to get the complete supplement. Go to magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. Use coupon code Dr. Drew 10 to save up to 40% off select packages and to get the most full spectrum and effective magnesium product ever. Hey everybody, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Of course, keep supporting those people that support us. Uh, and thank you. Do check by, out by the drdrew.com website. We're doing some streams there on a regular basis. And don't forget to sign up at drdrew.tv. You'll get a blast. And when we do go on to that stream and I think people uh, like the After Dark show uh, an awful lot, so please go check that out as well. My privilege to welcome to the show today Dr. Paul Saladino. The book is Carnivore Code, Unlocking the Secrets to the Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet, available as of August 4th, available now at the usual places. Uh, also check out the website, thecarnivorecodebook.com. Dr. Saladino is a functional medicine specialist and board certified in psychiatry, interestingly, and uh, also physician nutrition specialist. Uh, Paul, welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. How did you get from psychiatry to functional medicine? That's a big jump. It is and it isn't. You know, um, you know that Western medicine likes to balkanize things. We like to silo specialties and say that the brain isn't connected to the gut, but it surely is. And, oh, the heart, those blood vessels in the heart, they may actually have to do with the immune system, which circulates through the whole heart. And that same immune system might actually affect the brain and everything. So what I realized quickly throughout my medical training was that specialties don't really serve patients very well. And so I quickly sort of tried to think outside of my specialty. And that was the beginning of my interest in nutrition and biochemistry to a much broader scheme and a much broader framework than just sort of the neurobiology of psychiatry. Did you ever practice psychiatry? I did. Yeah. I mean, I did residency in psychiatry and I've seen some clients with primarily psychiatric illnesses, but four years of psychiatric residency was enough to teach me pretty quickly that I didn't want to practice psychiatry in the mainstream model for very long at all. So you, so you didn't practice, you just went right over and trained on, in the in nutritional medicine? Yeah, I mean, the nutritional medicine training was really happening throughout my residency. As you know, most physicians that 
know up from down with regard to nutrition are self-trained because we don't get any training in medical school or any residency really for that matter. So the functional medicine training was stuff I was doing in residency and then really toward the end of residency as I got interested in animal-based diets and a carnivore diet and wrote the book. I was doing my own sort of research and dove deep into that and was doing my own sort of nutritional research and then I got board certified just uh, earlier this year as a physician nutrition specialist. It's really, there's not a whole lot of board certifications out there for nutrition. So I was like, well, what can I do? What's the, what's the best board certification nutrition I could do? So I went and did that one just to, to make sure I was as credentialed as possible to do this right. kind of work that I think is so important. Right, right, right. Um, so I got a million questions. Um, what was your undergraduate training? Chemistry and biology. Okay, good. So, so you, you come with the right sort of mindset to, to do this kind of work. Now, one of the things, do you know Kate Shanahan? Yeah, real well. Right. So, so one of the reasons I like Kate is she's, she's obviously a, a skilled biochemist in addition to being a family practitioner. And, and she looked at nutritional problems and just went, oh, it's too infinitely complex. There's only a few things that I could really say something about. And she, she drilled into fats. Obviously, that's her thing. It, it seems like you have a little bit of a broader outlook than she does. Well, yes and no. I think that there's all these different levels of magnification. It's like, remember when you were in science lab in the sixth grade and you had those really cool microscopes, you could flip it to like 5X, 10X or 100X. And there's different levels of magnification, I think, with which we can view or through which we can view problems of the current chronic disease epidemic in the United States. And I think it depends on the the level of magnification that you want to go to. If you want to go 5X, 10X or 100X, Kate and I definitely agree on the vegetable oils. And I think at a very granular foundational level, the excess of polyunsaturated fatty acids, specifically linoleic acid in the American diet today is a huge evolutionary inconsistency. It's a massive driver of chronic disease and especially the underlying insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction that drives so much of our health crisis. But at different levels of magnification, there are many other things that are doing similar things to humans or on, doing... I'll let you go there in a second. I just want to drill on that piece for a second because it is so pertinent. At least Kate has made it pertinent to the COVID situation where she is saying that the, those acids, those, those fatty acids are having an issue in terms of creating inflammation and setting up the central obesity and really being made perhaps a central cofactor in people who have complications from the COVID and flu. And she is saying, so just a nice shorthand for people, if you haven't heard any of us talk to Kate, I mean, she's pretty, very consistent in her, her messaging. And she is saying, you know, stay with tallow butter. The easy thing is stay with tallow butter. And uh, what's her third favorite? Uh, olive oil. Would you agree with that? I'm a big fan of the tallow and the butter. If we get pretty granular, I'm not as excited about olive oil. I think it's much less beneficial fat for humans and much less evolutionarily consistent than the animal fats, tallow and butter. Got it. Is is the is the is the olive oil off the menu for a carnivore diet? It is. It's not something that I recommend. It's not something that I think people should be using. Liquid oils in general, I think, are problematic for most people, and, and there's a clear clear preference for the animal fats, and we can get into why. The main issues are the vegetable oils, so the corn, the canola, the soy, this you know, the, the peanut, etc. But yeah. margarine, yeah, you definitely don't want the trans fat in margarine, but. You know, I think that the journey, the, the jury is still out on highly monounsaturated fat liquid oils. We can drill down on there if you want, but the tallow and the butter, I think, are much better for humans. And I interrupted you as you were about to go into the animal fat conversation, I think, so I apologize. So go ahead. Well, it's just the idea that, you know, humans have not been, 
you know, basically grinding olives and making olive oil for very long. Uh, it's, it's, we've been eating animal fat for hundreds of thousands, millions of years, yeah. and they're so consistently found in hunter-gatherer populations. Really, before 1865, there was no such thing as vegetable oil of any kind, and that was when cottonseed oil came around. And then in 1911, you know, we had the advent of things like Crisco, which are essentially hydrogenated vegetable fats, the, the, the evil cousin of margarine or, you know, maybe the redheaded stepsister. They're both pretty problematic. And then from there, we've just been getting more and more of these liquid oils. And to, to take an olive and to, to squeeze it to make a highly monounsaturated fat is much better than a polyunsaturated omega-6, like a linoleic acid-rich corn or soybean oil but it still presents some problems, I think, and isn't ideal. The other thing to think about is why we're using these oils in general. I get this question a lot from social media and people, what oil should I cook with? And the answer is no. Oh. Don't, cook with, don't cook with oil. I don't know why we're cooking with oil in the first place. Um, I, if people want to cook with tallow or butter, that's fine. But generally speaking, I think it's much better to just not cook with oil. Most meat has fat in it that you can cook with. And then I think there's some really interesting data around polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines. It's not fully fleshed out, but there's a suggestion that, hey, why don't we just cook most of our stuff sous vide in water? I do a lot of blanching of meat in, in bone broth. Why don't we cook at lower temperature and just, you know, completely obviate the discussion around these byproducts, these malleard uh, byproducts and these, these products of higher heat cooking. And then certainly we probably should not be heating oils to high temperatures and cooking in them. Even monounsaturated oils can be problematic, I think, from that perspective. And, and I've heard carcinogenicity is one of the big issues there, yes? Yeah, and we don't know for sure. There's some epidemiology to suggest that people who consume more polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines from all sources, these can occur in both plant and animal foods when they're heated to high temperatures, they do have a, a greater association with cancers. It's, there's no initial, there's no sort of interventional research at this point, but there's a suggestion and it, it kind of makes sense. You, you really don't want to just like fry the heck out of your bacon and the bacon oil for a long time. All that sizzling and cracking, I mean, that is, that's basically oxidation happening at a molecular level. You have a chemistry experiment going on in the frying pan and it's like, uh, I'm not sure that's the best thing for humans. There needs to be more research there. But we, you know, it's pretty clear that Lower temperature, more gentle cooking is much safer. So whether it comes to meat or plants, that's probably a much better option for humans. And not using oils when you're cooking in general just makes sense to me. The more unsaturated an oil is, the more of these double bonds between the carbons, it's just, you know, this is kind of chemistry 101 from freshman year of college. The more double bonds, the more easy it is for oxygen or other sort of electrophilic molecules, these molecules with an unpaired electron to attack that double bond between the carbons and you get this peroxidation, you get this oxidation of the lipid, which can then generate these reactive oxygen species and problematic things for our body to, to really deal with. So it's probably creating some level of oxidative stress to heat oil of any kind. And the, the more saturated the oil is, the more stable it's going to be in that stress, in that heat. And the, the peroxides are causing free radicals. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. You can find the chemistry reactions without doing a, a visual podcast. It's a little bit hard to to actually show people how this works. But yes, essentially what we're talking about is the movement of electrons. There's an electron currency here. And, and when a molecule comes into the human body, whether it's, usually it's an exogenous molecule, so some compound that we are eating, whether it's an oxidized oil or a plant compound, if that compound has 
an unpaired electron or a tendency to steal electrons from our molecules, from the molecules of our body, we call that molecule a pro-oxidant. Oxidation and reduction at a biochemical level are just the movement of electrons, with loss of electrons being oxidation, gain of electrons being reduction. So when a molecule comes in and kind of steals an electron from one of our molecules, whether it's a protein on the surface of LDL or it's cholesterol or another molecule that's really kind of fragile, that creates uh, an unpaired electron in the molecule that just had the electron stolen. And that can then create a series of chain reactions leading to the formation of things like free radicals, which are generally considered to be problematic in excess. Hmm. And in that they tear through structures. They can tear through structures. They can also change the conformation of structures. And so when a molecule is oxidized, it probably looks different in the body. Proteins in space have a three-dimensional conformation. And with regard to the LDL molecule or the LDL lipoprotein, which is a, you know, a lipid monolayer, this low-density lipoprotein that we're all told to refer to colloquial as, quote, cholesterol, but actually is a vehicle for both cholesterol and triglycerides, into the membrane of that LDL molecule are other uh, proteins inserted. And one of those is ApoB100. There's multiple variants of ApoB based on where it's used, like ApoB48 in the chylomicrons, but ApoB100 is in the LDL. And when ApoB100 gets oxidized, it looks different to cells in our body. And one of the prevailing theories of sort of the initiation of atherosclerosis is that sometimes this ApoB gets mutated or modified or misfolded because of an oxidation or a peroxidation in connection with other surrounding lipids, perhaps, and that makes it look like a foreign molecule. The macrophages might bind to it with something like a scavenger receptor, and the macrophages pull it, pull it inside, and they become these sort of pre-atherosclerotic foam cells. Now, all of the pieces in this equation aren't fully worked out, but that's one of the prevailing theories. We know in mice that if you, if you knock out ApoB, they don't seem to get atherosclerosis. So there does seem to be something important about that molecule identifying LDL and how it's recognized potentially by cells like macrophages in that subintimal space. But it all comes back to one of the things we're talking about here, which is those proteins can be delicate. And if oxidation gets out of control, that is if there's too many of these molecules in the membrane, especially these fragile molecules like polyunsaturated fatty acids, polyunsaturated fatty acids, can that lead to misfolding or changes in the conformational structure of that ApoB100 in the LDL and make it look different? This is what we might call oxidized LDL. And many people may have heard about this term and, and how that might be one of the main issues. So how do we avoid getting oxidized LDL? That's another deep rabbit hole we can go into. Right. So, so I, I don't want to lose everybody. So we're talking about how cholesterol is brought inside the lining of arteries and causes the inflammation that eventually causes the cholesterol plaque. And, and the apoproteins are these, proteins are folded structures and they're sort of, they go to their lowest energy state and their you know, lowest entropy and enthalpy states. And, or or the, second, the laws of thermodynamics prevail in terms of how proteins fold on themselves. But if you do something that changes their structure, you methylate them, you glycolate them, you oxidize them, you can change the folding structures. And if you oxidize them, they're more likely to be picked up by these macrophages. Would that be the right way to say it? Yeah, that's one of the, one of the, I would say stronger hypotheses for the initiation. I had heard this with an ApoA, uh, like an A3 or something. I, it's funny. I'd heard the exact same theory with an ApoA protein, and I'd somewhere heard that it was associated with insulin resistance. Where did I come up with that theory? 
Are you thinking of APOC3? There's a lot of these apolipoproteins. It turns into a little bit of an alphabet soup. People have, people have probably heard APOE because of the APOE4 variant that is associated yeah. with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Right. APOE is a, another apolipoprotein that is on many of our lipoproteins. APOC3 is on LDL as well. And there is some thought that states of insulin resistance, there's good evidence, and I review this in my book in the Carnivore Code, that in states of insulin resistance, APOC3 seems to become enriched in our LDL particles. And so APOA is the apolipoprotein that's on HDL. So I've not seen any research that APOA... It was C3, I beg your pardon. Yeah, yeah. It was C3, because I was, I was thinking A3, and that you're, but you're absolutely right, it was C3. And, and then, this, now I have a feeling, my, my hunch is that the insulin resistance story, at least in certain genetic groupings, is a bigger piece of the story than we know. And that's just my hunch. A, take that hunch on, and B, tell me how if that hunch is correct or you agree with it, might it be part of the story in these autoimmune syndromes that you're treating? Insulin resistance is the biggest problem, and this is, sounds like hyperbole, but I'll say it with some degree of confidence. Uh, I think insulin resistance is the driver of almost every single chronic disease we have today, and I'll tell you why. And insulin resistance is a little bit hard to define in and of itself, so we may have to unpack this a little bit. But when we look for insulin resistance in a variety of ways, whether it's a prediabetes syndrome with an elevated fasting glucose, an elevated hemoglobin A1C, an elevated fasting insulin, uh, a failed oral glucose tolerance test, or we get really granular and do research models like uh, clamp testing with insulin, or we look at just simple things like postprandial glucose levels with a continuous glucose monitor, we find repeatedly that states of insulin resistance that are you know, sort of uh, evidenced by just derangements and all of those all of those metrics and can be seen as metabolic dyslipidemia, which is a characteristic change in the lipid panel where the HDL gets lower and the triglycerides get higher. That is correlated with so many chronic diseases. It's correlated with obviously diabetes. It's correlated with metabolic syndrome, which is really almost a synonym for it. And it's also correlated with coronary artery disease, heart attacks, atherosclerosis, stroke, uh, Alzheimer's, the list goes on and on and on. And it, it is, as you suggested at the beginning of this podcast, there's been a lot of good evidence to correlate this type of metabolic dysfunction with worse outcomes with coronavirus. And this shouldn't be surprising for us because we've known this in the past with previous flu pandemics. Metabolic derangements, metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance are all synonyms. In all of these conditions, what we see is this imbalance between the innate and the adaptive immune systems. So now we're kind of switching the lens on the microscope and, and kind of looking at some little bit different part of the slide, but there are these two branches of the immune system. The innate immune system is composed of things like neutrophils, macrophages, dendritic cells, natural killer cells. The adaptive immune system is the T cells and the B cells, and they're in a balance. And those can get out of balance during insulin resistance, which is what's so fascinating. So you get this innate immune imbalance. You can actually see pretty predictably that in the ratio between neutrophils, which are an innate immune cell, and lymphocytes, which are an adaptive immune cell type, that ratio is disordered in people with insulin resistance. And that leads to improper both initiation of an immune response to a pathogen and resolution 
of the immune response to the pathogen. It's that resolution of the immune response that is so problematic for most people with coronavirus right now who are suffering greatly. They get this, quote, cytokine storm. There's actually this clinical this clinical picture where they might do okay and they seem to get a little better and then they get a lot worse as really the inflammation doesn't resolve because there's this imbalance between innate and immune. And that's not necessarily all based on a problem with the immune system. One level deeper, it's really coming from problems with insulin resistance and insulin signaling. And at a basic molecular sort of cellular biology level, all of the cells in our body, including the immune cells, including macrophages and neutrophils and T cells and B cells, they also have insulin receptors. And when they become insulin resistant, because during a state of insulin resistant, every cell in the body becomes insulin resistant, the liver, the pancreas, the muscles, the brain, the blood brain barrier, the gut, and your immune cells, they do not work like they should. And so I want to really the strong statement here is that if we could correct this, really the pandemic of metabolic dysfunction, we would save millions of lives from yeah. coronavirus and other pandemics to follow and the chronic diseases I mentioned, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, Alzheimer's, et cetera. So I, I want to, we're, we are going to go into the weeds here. So, so we often talk about insulin resistance as though it is one thing. Um, my sense of it and my understanding of it, it, it is, it, it's a little more complicated than that. How would you break that down? So insulin resistance. And, and let, me I, just, let me just paint a picture before you, because you're going to go into the biochemistry, but let me, let me paint a clinical center for people and maybe it'll help them which is that, you know, when we think of insulin resistance, a lot of people think about fat people, right? You exceed your body's ability to, you know, to, you outstrip your ability to produce insulin and you become sort of resistant. That's one way of doing it. The other is the something happens on the cell surface or inside the cells that makes the insulin function less well. I had a patient that has, he, had, he, was, not, he was sort of had central obesity, but he controlled it very well with diet. But he, in spite of that, in spite of being diligent with diet and really, and by the way, he never got into this particular diet that you're talking about. He was trying other things. He could never get the, his hypertension was always difficult to control. His blood sugar was always right at the margin. His cholesterol was controlled, but with a bunch of meds. And he, and he had antiphospholipid syndrome uh, and had uh, some uh, clotting as a result of that. He got COVID and was dead in like less than three days. Uh, it was like, it was almost as the disease picked him up and slammed him on the ground. I've never seen anything like it. That, that is a, to me, that was a genetic kind of insulin resistance that's different than the run-of-the-mill insulin, insulin resistance that I often think of. Talk to me about these differences. So interesting. I wish I'd been able to see that patient with you. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about his, his death, but let's just break down a few things. Obesity comes in many shapes and sizes. But when we are talking about obesity, what we should really be focused on is visceral adiposity. If we are looking at obesity as an indicator of metabolic health, what really matters is the fat tissue that is within our peritoneum. This is the lining of our gut that encapsulates or encases our intestines and the sort of the, the guts, quote unquote. Now, that fat around our intestines is very different metabolically than the fat that is subcutaneous or under our skin. Are you and so people, about, hang on, are you talking about the omentum? Well, yes, that's, that's, the omentum is comprised of a lot of visceral adipose tissue, yes. Right. Yeah. And then other, and then other fat that's sort of in and around tissues like around the in, heart. 
In, well, the heart is thoracic, but it's mostly this visceral abdominal obesity. Yeah. Okay. So someone can have a thin waistline, but if they have visceral adipose tissue, which is something we need a DEXA or an MRI to see, they can have a thin waistline, but still be very metabolically unhealthy and very susceptible to um, infectious disease or other complications of chronic disease that we know stem from this insulin resistance. So just having a controlled waistline is not the same. And I think that our tools in medicine are very crude, even though it's 2020. I have a good friend on Twitter, Sean O'Mara, who's a physician in Minnesota, and he's doing MRIs on patients. And all the time, he'll send me reports of these MRIs, and you can see the visceral adipose tissue, and it's in, it's around the, the gut, it's around the intestines, it's the omentum and these other fatty tissues within the peritoneum. And there was an example he sent me the other day, he posted this on, on social media, somebody walked into his clinic and said, I've eaten vegan for 25 years, I don't have any visceral adipose tissue. Uh -huh. This patient was absolutely full of it, full of visceral adipose tissue, because it's not about vegan or carnivore. It's not about meat or vegetables. It's about polyunsaturated fatty acids. And I'll, I'll break this down for you. Like there are other nuances in our diet that cause that visceral adipose tissue to grow. Now, the other caveat to mention here is that different nationalities, so there is a genetic component, different nationalities of humans tend to become insulin resistant slower or faster as their visceral adipose tissue grows. As Americans, as Americans, quote unquote, white Caucasian Europeans, we tend to be able to get very fat before we become insulin resistant. And you've probably noticed this in your practice. Southeast Asians, Asians, they get insulin resistant very quickly, even before they are obviously obese or you know, very extremely obese. And this is very misleading. And I think it's the, it's something that causes a lot of consternation, in a lot of family practice docs and internists as they have these Vietnamese or Southeast Asian patients who don't look to all, uh, to all observation as though they may have diabetes and they have raging evidence of insulin resistance, glucose dysregulation and metabolic dyslipidemia with all of the attendant consequences because it's visceral adipose tissue. And there is a genetic set point at which that visceral adipose tissue says, no, I will not expand anymore. So I'll just go one step down this rabbit hole, and I think this will start to make sense, okay? Mm -hmm. So basically what we're looking at here, I believe at, a, at, at the most sort of granular level is an environmental genetic mismatch, a, a profound and evolutionary incongruity in the amount of polyunsaturated oils that humans eat in 2020. If you go into the cell and you look at the mitochondria of the cell, the actual cellular powerhouses, different fats that we eat affect our blood fats differently. And what we're finding is that the, the ratio of different fats in our blood is very powerful. It's a very powerful signal from the adipose tissue because the adipose tissue is what's releasing free fatty acids, right? Part of the role of insulin is to stop lipolysis at the level of the adipose tissue. And so when the adipose tissue releases free fatty acids into the blood, those free fatty acids are a, it's an array of lengths of different chains of free fatty acids. And that is the signal to the rest of our body, to the immune cells, to the muscles, to the brain, to the liver of whether to be insulin resistant or whether to be insulin sensitive. And so the reason it works like that is because in the mitochondria, as those fats are taken up by the mitochondria of our peripheral cells, 
the, some of those fats make those mitochondria insulin resistant, and some of those fats make the mitochondria insulin sensitive. And there's a real nuance here, okay? But basically what seems to happen, I think this is really fascinating, is that in a state of insulin resistance, the majority of people have just absolute spillover of free fatty acids from the adipose tissue, mostly from the visceral adipose tissue, because at a genetic set threshold, that adipose tissue has said, you cannot cram any more fat into me. It's like a dresser drawer in your bedroom. It's full. You can't put any more clothes in it, but everybody has a different size dresser drawer. But when that dresser drawer gets full, the adipose tissue just starts spewing out these free fatty acids, regardless of the signals from insulin. Usually if an adipocyte, if a fat cell is sensitive to insulin and there is insulin in the blood to any significant degree that the concentration is important, that fat cell will stop lipolysis and will grow. But once the fat cells just become absolutely packed at our own individual genetic threshold, they just start to sort of spew out free fatty acids, an enzyme called ATGL, adipocyte triglyceride lipase, um, just starts working independently of hormone-sensitive lipase, and they just send this free fatty acid out into the blood. If you look at someone with metabolic syndrome or diabetes, they have very high levels of free fatty acids in the blood. And if you look more closely, you'll see a specific ratio of free fatty acids in the blood. And it's that ratio, that composition of what are essentially lipokine signals. So a lot of this stuff is super fascinating and it may be new to your listeners, but there are these signals coming from our adipocytes in, the, in our bellies that are telling the rest of our body to be insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. And the problem comes that when we eat lots of polyunsaturated fatty acids, so when we eat lots of specifically linoleic acid, that visceral adipose tissue gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And we see this very clearly in mouse models, and we see it in humans too, but there have been some very elegant experiments in mice where if they feed the mice certain types of fat, specifically vegetable oils, they will see that visceral adipose tissue just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually it can't get any bigger and it becomes this this source of these lipokine signals to the rest of the body. Now, there's a really interesting model for this with lipodystrophy. And this may be, I apologize if this is getting too granular. I'll wrap it up in a second and we can kind of go back over and, and, and smooth it out if people have questions. But there's a type of familial lipodystrophy called Dunnigan's lipodystrophy, and it's a single gene mutation. It's a monogenic mutation that causes profound insulin resistance. And if you look at these patients, I don't know if you've ever seen the patient with Dunnigan familial lipodystrophy, but they are ripped. They have huge calves. They have very lean legs, very muscular. They look like they have a six pack. But if you do an MRI or a DEXA, they are full of visceral fat. And the reason this, this is so problematic is they can't store fat anywhere. Mm-hmm. They stuff the visceral fat full of fat, and then it becomes completely jammed with fat, and they start getting lots of these free fatty acids released to the rest of the body. But they are, for, unless you look at them very carefully, you wouldn't even notice they are so insulin resistant. They have massively accelerated atherosclerosis, and it's because these adipocytes have this genetic problem where the adipocytes actually can't store fat. And very quickly, they will get too full and start spewing out these free fatty acids, telling the rest of the body to be insulin resistant. These patients are very insulin resistant, and yet they look pretty darn mean everywhere. And so this is the problem is that we can create a state kind of like that by over consuming linoleic acid, which is not something we're supposed to do, nor have we ever done in evolution. And that is telling our visceral fat to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, we may not see it as much because our subcutaneous fat might not grow at the same rate, 
But if that visceral fat is growing and then it starts sending out those lipokine free fatty acid signals to the rest of the body, you end up with systemic insulin resistance and big problems. But it's all stemming from this evolutionarily inconsistent level of linoleic acid from primarily vegetable oils in our diet. Okay. So I, I want to run back over all of that again and I have a couple of questions. So, so from a pragmatic standpoint, this is all a, a giant physiologic slash biochemical uh, understanding now that buttresses the recommendation, stop the vegetable oils. That's our bottom line here, right? Yes. Yes. Secondly, it's funny that this whole theory, I wonder, I used to always wonder why I would see these thin elderly type two diabetics and they were so hard to control. And I think they were probably a genetic variant that had something like that lipodystrophy type patient because they were always very thin, very lean. And I'd be just confused. Like why, why all this insulin resistance? It was crazy. And I bet you it was a very similar kind of syndrome. Um, so uh, you mentioned free fatty acid ratio. What were you talking about there? So this is where it gets to be a little complicated. <laughs> all right. So bear with me here. So and there are there are two main the two topics I want to get to. One one is that just because I was curious. I just, uh -huh. but secondly, I I want you to start to drill a little bit more on the cellular mechanisms and intracellular mechanisms around insulin. Sure, that, that's a that's a really complicated story, and I think it it is it flushes out the notion of quote insulin resistance a little bit. Yeah, let's go there first. So you you had mentioned this earlier, and this may be helpful for people. So. At a cellular level, insulin resistance is a normal physiologic process from time to time in human life on a day-to-day -day basis, on a week-to-week -week basis, evolutionarily, in all of our ancestors. Why would you mean by insulin resistance? Now, insulin resistance is when a cell says, I'm full of energy, and there's a signal that usually comes from the mitochondria. Sometimes it can come from the peroxisomes or other parts of the cell. And that signal is reactive oxygen species. So kind of we're back to a little bit of oxidative chemistry here. But when a cell is full from an energetic perspective, that is when a cell has decided, hey, I have lots of energy, I don't need more energy, it's going to send out a signal within the cell. So it starts in the mitochondria, which is one of these intracellular organelles, and it, they send out reactive oxygen species, usually in the form of hydrogen peroxide. Um, eventually. And the, these oxidative signals affect the insulin receptor. So the insulin receptor is on the surface of the cell. These oxidative, these reactive oxygen species signals start inside the cell. And it's sort of the inside of the cell saying, hey, we're good on energy. We don't need any more energy. We're going to release some reactive oxygen species. So this is a situation in which reactive oxygen species are useful. We don't want to completely abrogate them. We don't want to completely get rid of reactive oxygen species. They're useful. They're a cellular signal in normal physiology. This happens all the time. As you are eating any meal, any mixed meal, some cells of your body say, hey, we're good. And they, they kind of shut off the insulin receptor, which means the signaling for insulin at the level of that cell says, okay, because one of the roles of insulin at higher concentrations is to tell a cell to take up nutrients, to grow. Insulin is kind of like an on-off switch. When a cell is sensitive to insulin and insulin is around to bind to its receptor on the cell surface, as the cell responds to insulin, it changes a bunch of genetics in the cell and it says, okay, there's nutrients coming in. Let in glucose, let in free fatty acids. It uses, <clears throat> it uses things like lipoprotein lipase to pull fatty acids and glucose into the cell from the bloodstream. 
But once the body's, once the cell has had enough of that, it says, okay, I'm full. It kind of pushes away from the table and lets everybody else at the table keep eating if they're not full yet, right? It's like a big, long table at a family restaurant. And it says, you know, one guy gets full. He's like, I'm good. He's going to let other people keep eating. That is normal insulin resistance. That is a normal process. Now, this turns into pathology when, they're, when, when, this, when all of the cells of the human body have become basically so full of nutrients and so full of, um, so full of uh, these, these, these sort of caloric equivalents that they all kind of shut off in the case of something like uh, processed food where we're just overwhelming our body with tons and tons of calories and we're just getting an absolute excess of everything or in the setting of this sort of this signaling from the adipocytes, because one of the other ways that a cell can become insulin resistant is if there are certain fatty acid ratios in these free fatty acids released from the visceral adipose tissue. And you said, what are these different fats in this sort of free fatty acids in the blood? This is where it gets a little confusing, so bear with me. There are two main fats here. They are palmitic acid and palmitoleic acid. Both of them are 16 carbon fatty acids. One of them is a monounsaturated fat, which is palmitoleic acid. It's a 16-carbon omega-7. And there is um, palmitic acid, which is a 16-carbon saturated fat. Now, at a very sort of, at a, at a broadly speaking level, the ratio between palmitoleic acid and palmitic acid appears to determine, appears to be one of the signals from the adipocytes to the rest of the body whether they should be insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. And this is actually a really important point to consider because it's been incorrectly sort of discussed uh, at many levels in the past. In people who are insulin resistant, they have more saturated fat in their blood. They have more palmitate, more of the palmitic acid. And so at this point, everyone says, wait a minute, you've just been telling me that polyunsaturated fats are bad. You haven't said anything about saturated fat. I get it now. My doctor says saturated fat is bad. That's it all makes sense, right? Saturated fat causes insulin resistance, except it doesn't work that way because there have been multiple experiments demonstrating that the amount of saturated fat that you eat has nothing to do with the amount of palmitic acid in your blood. It's mm. completely independent and it's mm. a signal from the adipocytes. So that's, that's not true because, you know, there are vegan and plant-based proponents out there who will say, look, if there's more palmitate in your blood, you're more insulin resistant. That is physiologically true. What is not physiologically true is that saturated fat in your diet leads to higher levels of palmitate. That doesn't happen. What does happen is that depending on the amount of carbohydrate and other fats in your diet, that may affect the amount of polyunsaturated fats in your diet. So say that again. I think you, I think you said something carbs and poly and sat and fats. What they can affect the amount of polyunsaturated fats in your diet okay. and in your, in your blood. In so, yeah, yeah, it's a little tricky. I could show you some papers on it, depending on. Diet, I thought you made in the blood, so it's in the blood. Yeah, in the blood. So basically, what happens is that if you start with insulin resistance, until I started thinking about this way, it didn't make sense to me either. But it all starts at the level of the adipocytes. So insulin resistance starts in your fat cells, and this is going to back to what I was saying earlier that when your fat cells become overfull they start to send out the signal to the rest of the body to become insulin resistant. And that yeah. signal is actually more palmitate. It's more, it's yeah. more saturated fat. Yeah. Simple idea, right? What's that? It's a simple idea. I think people would get that. Yeah. And yeah. so the reason, so this is the nuance that I think is really kind of mind blowing for people. Polyunsaturated fats in your diet make your fat cells remain insulin sensitive. 
And saturated fat in your diet actually appears to make your fat cells kind of insulin resistant. And this is why the whole thing gets flipped on its head because you want fat cells that are insulin resistant and a body that is insulin sensitive. And and because if your fat cells are inappropriately insulin sensitive, they will just grow and grow and grow. And then what happens? The dresser gets over full and sends out the signals to the rest of the body. So until I really dug into this, I'd never heard anyone talk about these different, this dichotomy and this signaling relationship between the visceral adipose tissue and the periphery. But if you think about it at the level of your fat cells, you don't want your fat cells to be insulin sensitive. Got it. You don't want your fat cells to grow. You don't want them to get super big. With them. Yeah. And so when you eat polyunsaturated vegetable oil, there are more of the polyunsaturated fats in your blood. If you eat saturated fat, it won't change the amount of saturated fat in your blood. If you eat polyunsaturated fat, it will raise the amount of polyunsaturated fat in your blood. And that's a bad thing because it tells the adipocytes to keep growing and growing and growing. And if you eat polyunsaturated fat with glucose or sugar, which could be a donut or any other piece of junk food, you know, that's a pretty metabolically uh, dangerous combination, your fat cells grow very quickly. And once they reach that threshold, and especially these are the visceral adipose tissue cells, they just send out these free fatty acid signals to the body and things get really messed up. Does all that kind of make sense? It's pretty interesting stuff. Oh, no, it's great. But now I want you to jump over to the bigger topic of inflammation from this. Sure. So this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Once the human body, once we become insulin resistant, so say your visceral adipose tissue is kind of full. And again, it depends on your genetic set point at what level that visceral adipose tissue is going to start sending out those free fatty acid signals to the rest of the body. And you can measure these. You can measure free fatty acids. It's not something we do commonly in medicine. It's more like a research metric, but it's doable. I feel, I feel like I need to have you repeat lots of things because there's, there's so much of your stuff is so profound. So re- repeat that again about the free fatty acids. So basically what I'm saying is that once you become insulin resistant, once this adipose tissue, especially the visceral adipose, gets over full and is sending out these lipokine signals to the rest of the body, you know, that's where you become insulin resistant. And you can measure free fatty acids in the blood. I mean, this is mostly done in research labs, but if anyone had a question, you could look for you can measure free fatty acids in your blood. You would need to measure the ratio between palmitate and palmitoleic acid, but you could tell. You can also tell what your visceral adipose tissue is, again, with a DEXA or an MRI. You can also tell what your visceral adipose tissue is doing with a fasting glucose, a fasting insulin, or all the other metrics we were looking at. But very few physicians are taught to check a fasting insulin or to look at something like a continuous glucose monitor to think about how the visceral adipose tissue is behaving metabolically. I think if we changed our perspective there, we could save a lot of lives and prevent a lot of suffering. But basically what's happening is visceral adipose tissue eventually gets over full at your own genetic set point. It sends out these lipokine signals. And remember, I mentioned earlier that every cell in your body is affected by these lipokine signals. Every cell in your body has insulin receptors. Every cell in your body has mitochondria, except the red blood cells, right? So they're all going to have this signal and they're all going to get insulin resistant. And so I think the inflammation that is connected with insulin resistance often has to do with this imbalance between the innate and adaptive immune responses that I mentioned earlier. So it all kind of ties together. It's such an interesting synchronicity when we think about it. 
the way that people with coronavirus who are insulin resistant are having these immune reactions is very similar, is analogous to the way that someone with diabetes has an inflammation driving their immune response or their disordered immune response driving inflammation. Because what is inflammation? When I was in residency, I gave a talk and asked a room full of attendings and medical students, what is inflammation? And it was so interesting to see them kind of puzzle. You know, we're, it's not really rocket science in medical school to understand that inflammation drives a lot of diseases, but so few of us are taught what inflammation actually even is. Well, it's, it's just, it's by the way, it's, it's a broad category just under disease itself. Right, <laughs> right. It's, it's infection, you know, it's just a disease, it's just a big category. Right. But when you think about it, inflammation is kind of this cytokine milieu. It's immune. Inflammation is immunology. It's a disordered response of the immune system. Your immune system creates inflammation. We know this when you cut yourself or you break an arm, you get inflammation because your immune cells and your body's responding. That's good inflammation or you get a fever. And that fever might help with the body's innate response for you know, millions of years. That's inflammation. That's coming from these immune cells. And since immune cells are not really a coherent organ. We don't often think about it, but there's this circulating network. For lack of a better comparison, they're like a cellular phone network in the body. And there's all these towers and they're sending out signals. And the way that the immune cells are texting back and forth is the cytokine milieu. And so inflammation is when all the immune cells are texting back and forth, like there's something going on. It's like when there's a Twitter, you know, something is trending on Twitter and everybody gets all messed up and angry about it. That's inflammation. It's the communication between these immune cells. And I think that the problem here with the connection between insulin resistance and inflammation is that in a state of insulin resistance, remember, these two branches of the immune system get disordered and they're not a balance. And so they can't communicate well. So it's like a breakdown in social media, which we know is dangerous in the first place. But it's just like the worst social media environment you could imagine where the immune system is not communicating properly and it's kind of running around the body attacking things and then not stopping to attack things and not knowing what's an enemy or self. And I think that's also how it connects to autoimmunity, which is another part of what I do. And so it's really cool to see it all connected. But you and I both know this seeing clients and patients, like there's a real connection between autoimmunity, inflammation, insulin resistance. And it's because they're all connected with this central sort of signaling mechanism around these immune cells. And so you're saying there's an imbalance between the innate and the adaptive systems, correct? Exactly. And what is that imbalance? Basically that the innate system becomes overactive relative to the adaptive immune system and doesn't get shut off. It's so you can see that with this neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. And that's cytokine and that is predominant source of cytokine release. Well, it's cytokine driven. You actually see an imbalance between T helper one and T helper two cytokines. And, you know, those are on the adaptive side, but basically there needs to be this balance between innate, the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And it doesn't work so well in states of insulin resistance. And you get overactive parts of different systems. And it leads to what looks like clinically profound problems resolving inflammation. So inflammation gets started and then it can't resolve. And you get this smoldering inflammation. In the case of COVID, you get cytokine storm. And, and then you get uh, essentially destruction of small vessels, right? And then you, you, get you, can. you get apoptosis of cells, which are, seems to be like very different mechanisms, no? Well, it's all connected, right? It's absolutely all connected. I, I, again, that part still is kind of mysterious to me. It's like exactly what's going on there, but it, it certainly is connected. You know, and, and when you end up with 
let's say, sepsis, cytokine-related liver inflammation. I, I'm never sure what that is. Because, you know, if I look at the kidney, I go, oh, it's so dependent on small vessels, the small vessel destruction. And that's why the kidney's in trouble. Or there's, or there's, there's hypotension in the blood flow and you get a, a tu- acute tubular necrosis, that kind of stuff. But in just the, the flat-out inflammation that occurs, say, in the liver during a septicemic episode, to me, is always kind of mysterious. Does this explain that? Well, you know, during septicemia, you have an acute pathogen that's starting it, right? And I think it kind of makes sense because you would want your body to respond to a pathogen. I'm always kind of baffled when people just try and vilify inflammation all the time. We're trying to completely get rid of it. And I think, no, no, the reason humans have survived for millions of years is inflammation. If If you have a bacterial infection or a parasite, you want inflammation. We don't want to be getting rid of inflammation. We want to be understand what is causing inflammation. But I think that this is really at the center of it. It's that we get inappropriate, persistent, chronic inflammation because of the absence of resolution of the initial inflammation. And so, it's, 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 it's so many things are in medicine. It's dysregulation. Dysregulation. So here's a great paper, which I can send you. And the title kind of says it, and then I'll read the results in the abstract. It'll make sense. So that it's from uh, BMC Endocrine Disorders, in, I'll get you the date on this, 2015, relationship between neutrophil lymphocyte ratio and insulin resistance in newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes mellitus patients. Now, neutrophils are innate cells, lymphocytes are adaptive cells. So the NLR values, the neutrophil lymphocyte values of diabetic patients were significantly higher than those of healthy control patients. Hmm. So this is exactly what I'm saying, that then neutrophils, this innate immune system gets overactivated and the adaptive immune system, the lymphocytes are underactivated. We see this in patients with COVID, lymphopenia, right? Low, low lymphocytes, right? Bad outcome. Bad outcome. Mm, bad outcome. And it's the NLR ratio. It's this yeah. underlying metabolic dysfunction. These are patients with newly diagnosed type 2 DM. And they go on to say, and the NLR values, the neutrophil lymphocyte values of the patients with a HOMA IR which is a calculated metric of insulin resistance based on the fasting glucose and um, the fasting insulin, I believe, uh, of greater than two are notably greater than those of the patients with a HOMA IR value less than two. So if your HOMA IR is greater than two, we say you have more insulin resistance. Again, it's a calculated value, Mm -hmm. but the NLR values are higher. So their conclusion is increased neutrophil lymphocyte ratio, which is essentially synonymous with imbalance between the innate and adaptive immune systems, was significantly associated with IR, insulin resistance. And high NLR values may be a reliable predictive marker of insulin resistance. And this is in patients with type 2 DM. And so what's fascinating is this is essentially exactly what you're talking about with liver septicemia. It's dysregulated. It's that there probably was an insult and then the immune system couldn't turn off because you need the innate and adaptive immune systems to be balanced. You need the cytokine milieu, the Th1 versus Th2, broadly speaking, T helper one versus T helper two, cytokines to be balanced for the immune system to shut off. It's like a robot. You turn it on and it goes around mowing your lawn and then it just doesn't turn off. And then it goes and it mows all the shrubs and it mows all the bushes and then it's chasing your dog. And, Out of control. You know. but What's hey- that? I'm the out-of-control Roomba. I, I have yeah. to us up in about 10 minutes or maybe less than that, but please do send me that article to Gary. He'll forward on to me. But how did the, for the last few minutes here, how did you end up in carnivore? So I had my own autoimmune issues. I had eczema and asthma for my whole life. 
And I went through all kinds of diets. I did a vegan diet for 10 years, or not for 10 years, for seven months, about 10 or 12 years ago. I lost 25 pounds of muscle. I was super skinny and had horrible gas and bloating. I went back to paleo. Things got a little better, but my autoimmune issues continued. And I just kept iterating, thinking there's got to be something here. There's got to be something here. I know it's food triggering this. I really believe that food is such a huge immune stimulant for us and that it's connected with what's making us insulin resistant or insulin sensitive, but it can also be, we haven't even gotten into sort of the magnification level around plant toxins. It's all kind of talked about in my book, The Carnivore Code as well. But the idea for me was there are these toxins, there are things in plants, there are lectins or oxalates or molecules in plants that I really think are triggering my immune system. So I just kept cutting things out and out and out. And eventually I ended up with only meat. And I don't just eat meat because people will think, oh my God, this guy just eats steak all day. I mean, you can think of worse fates to tell you the truth, but I eat animals nose to tail. So what I discovered looking at anthropology and ethnography was this really interesting trend within our ancestors. They didn't eat a lot of vegetables. We've always been told they did, but if you really talk to anthropologists and you study currently living indigenous groups, I interviewed Lauren Cordain and many other people who have been very deep in this world, they eat mostly animal foods. They seek out animals, they hunt them preferentially, They'll gather plants during times of starvation, but they're essentially fallback foods. They're not meant to be the center of their diets. They'll eat fruit when it's in season, but that's about it. They'll eat fruit from plants and meat. And they don't eat a lot of, quote, vegetables, which are things like roots and stems and leaves and seeds. And I thought, okay, this makes a lot of sense. I'm going to cut it all out of my diet, do an entirely animal-based diet, and see how I feel. I had some apprehension because of all I'd been taught in functional medicine about the benefits of plant compounds. But what I found in my own experience was my eczema went away within a few weeks and has never recurred. I've eaten an exclusively animal-based diet now for over two years. I check my blood work every few months. I just got my blood work done. I just got a coronary artery calcium scan done. It was zero. That's a whole nother topic we can talk about another time. I have, my inflammation is essentially none. So there's no, nothing to suggest that anything I'm doing is unhealthy. My blood work looks amazing. I feel really good. Interviewed Sean Baker and and of course Vinny is a big proponent and Kate and whatnot and I I've been on it for about three years, sort of a modified version of it and I kind of never felt better from the standpoint of diet and general how my weight's managed. My only issue is I overeat protein. I, I'll, well, uh, yeah, and that's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem, and the important thing I think is for people to to check out my book, The Carnivore Code. In the end of the book. I talk about how to do a carnivore diet. The first part of the book is an evolutionary story. The second part is about the plant toxins. The third part is debunking so many of the myths we've been told about red meat. The last part of the book is how to do a carnivore diet. And I really think that it's crucial that people eat nose to tail, that you get these organ meats. And I think this is what's missing from human diets in 2020, like never before, because we are not eating liver. We are not eating kidney. And most of these things make people just get really squeamish unless they're from an ethnic family and they've eaten them. But there are so many unique nutrients in these organ meats that are crucial for optimal human health that we are missing. And so I eat a lot of organ meats every day. I had liver this morning. I had some thymus with it. I just ate lunch before I came on the podcast with you. I had some other organ meats, some spleens, kidney. People don't want to hear it. It sounds gross. But I'm trying to eat like my ancestors. Tell me more because I'm going to adopt it. Do you eat much heart? I eat heart. I ate heart twice today. Yeah, I love it. But and any particular animals? Anything? I, I prefer beef. I prefer beef organ meats because the beef, I'm so fortunate. There are so many good farms that now sponsor my podcast and that I'm so blessed to promote that are doing regenerative agriculture, that are doing grass feeding and grass finishing of animals. And but and certainly, you know, uh, the, you know, people that are pro-animal 
one of the ways they kind of reconcile some of this is by eating nose to tail. Exactly. Exactly. A piece of the animal go to waste. You You don't want any piece of the animal to go to waste. You want to respect the animal and you want all the nutrients. So I always ask people, where are you getting your riboflavin? And we're never taught about this. Nobody ever told me in medical school, make sure your patients are getting enough riboflavin, but it's so crucial. It's crucial for methylation. MTHFR enzyme doesn't work without riboflavin. Where do you get it? The list goes on. You get it from liver and heart. You really don't get much in muscle meat. And so you also get folate and choline and selenium and copper in liver. There's all these nutrients missing from just muscle meat that you can get in the organ meat. So one of the other super exciting things, I've got two super exciting things happening now. I've got my book coming out, which came out on August the 4th. And I also just launched a supplement company called Heart and Soil. Mm. And so what's so cool about this is I heard over and over from people that they couldn't get organ meats. So we take these organ meats from grass-fed, grass-finished cows in New Zealand, raised on regenerative farms, and we desiccate them. I'll have to send you some. They're desiccated, so they're freeze-dried. So we get the same thing out of it as eating it fresh and cooked? Pretty darn good, as close as you could possibly get, because it's even better than a dehydrator. You basically, you're basically dehydrating them at 38 degrees. So you're basically dehydrating them out of the fridge and then just putting them in a capsule. So it's pretty amazing how powerful these are. I really think that the fresh organs are the best, but if people won't eat, the fresh organs or can't eat it or don't have access to it, the desiccated organ supplements are so valuable for humans. And so that's what we're doing at Heart and Soil. Well, I can't wait to read the book and I can't wait to eat the desiccated product and I can't wait to figure out how I'm going to get some more organs in my diet. Um, if you have any recipes or anything to recommend too, I'd appreciate that as well. Um, you should put you should put out a recipe book. because uh, cookbook, or- cookbook is coming next. So yeah. So the- you really know how to you know cook organs, right? It's not something- yeah. To mind. Cookbook is coming early next year. <laughs> All right, I'd love to see that as well. And uh, and let's talk again when that comes out because I love I love your fund of knowledge. It's just it's just a, a refreshing to hear good science, and b it uh, enlightens me. I'm happy to anytime. I love talking about it, as you can tell. <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, and uh, the website again, uh, I don't have it up right now. So the website for the book is thecarnivorecodebook.com. Yep. If you want to check out what we're doing at Heart and Soil, it's heartandsoilsupplements.com, spelled out. And then my website is carnivoremd.com. Got it. Dr. Paul Saladino, thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Dr. Drew. Thanks, buddy. And we'll see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.